The main question I'm asking myself that puts everything together is how to do cosmology, how to make a theory of the universe as a whole system. This is said to be the golden age of cosmology, and it is from an observational point of view, but from a theoretical point of view, it's almost a disaster. It's crazy the kind of ideas that we find ourselves thinking about. And I find myself wanting to go back to basics, to basic ideas and basic principles, and understand how we describe the world in a physical theory. What's the role of mathematics? Why does mathematics come into physics? What's the nature of time? These two things are very related since mathematical description is supposed to be outside of time. And I've come through a long evolution since the late 80s to a position which is quite different from the one that I had originally and quite surprising even to me. Um, but let me, get, let me get to it bit by bit. Let me build up the questions and the problems that, that, that arise. Um, one way to start is what I call physics in a box, or theories of small isolated systems. The way we've learned to do this is to make an accounting or an itinerary, itinerary um, a listing of the possible states of a system. What, how can a possible system be? What are the possible configurations? What are the possible states? If it's a glass of Coca-Cola, what are the possible positions and states of all the atoms in the glass? Okay. Once we know that, we ask, how do the states change? And the metaphor here, which comes from atomism, it comes from Democritus and Lucretius, is that physics is nothing but atoms moving in a void. And the atoms never change. The atoms have properties like mass and charge that never change in time. The void, which is space, in the old days never changed in time, was fixed. And they moved according to laws, which were originally given by, well, tried to be given by Descartes and Galileo, given by Newton more, much more successfully. And um, up to the modern era where we describe them in quantum mechanics, the laws also never change. The laws tell us how, if we know the positions of all the atoms at a given moment, how they will change in time and lets us predict where the positions of the atoms will be at a later time. That's how we do physics, and I call that the Newtonian paradigm because it was invented by Newton. Um, and beh one, behind the Newtonian paradigm is the idea that the laws of nature are timeless. They're given once and for all. They act on the system, so to speak, from outside the system, and they evolve it from the past to the present to the future. If you know the state at any time, you can predict the state at any other time. So this is the framework for doing physics, and it's been very successful. And I'm not challenging its success within the proper domain. And the proper domain is small bits of the universe, small parts of the universe. Um, the problem that I've identified that I think is at the root of a lot of the spinning of our wheels and confusion of contemporary physics and cosmology is that you can't just take this method of doing science and scale it up to the universe as a whole. When you do, you run into questions that you can't answer. You end up with fallacies. You end up saying silly things. Um, and the reason is that 
what, on a cosmological scale, the questions that we want to understand are not just what are the laws, but why are these the laws rather than other laws? Where do the laws come from? What makes the laws what they are? And if the laws are input to the method, the method will never explain the laws because they're input. Also, given the state of the universe of a system at one time, use, we use the laws to predict the state at a later time. But what was the cause of the state at that present time that we started with, at that initial time? Well, it was something in the past. So we have to evolve from further into the past. And what was the reason for that past state? Well, there was something further and further in the past. So we end up at the Big Bang. And it ends up that any explanation for why are we sitting in this room, why is the Earth in orbit around the Sun, where it is now, any question of detail that we want to ask about the universe ends up being pushed back using the laws to the initial conditions at the Big Bang. And then we end up with wondering why were those initial conditions chosen? Why that particular set of initial conditions? Now we're using a different language. We're not talking about particles and Newton's laws. We're talking about quantum field theory. But the question is the same. What chose the initial conditions? And since the initial conditions are input to this method that Newton developed, it can't be explained within that method. So if we want to ask cosmological questions, if we want to really explain everything, we need to apply a different method. We need to have a different starting point. And the search for that different method has been the central point in my thinking since the early 90s. Now, some of this is not new. Um, the American philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce identified this issue that I've just mentioned in the late, 18, in the late 1890s, in the late 19th century. Um, but most physicists haven't been influenced by his thinking. And indeed, it, I th was thinking about laws evolving. And let me come to that before I read Charles Sanders Peirce. But something that he said encapsulates what I think is a very important conclusion that I came to through a painful route and other people have more recently come to, which is that the only way to explain how the laws of nature might have been selected is if there's a dynamical process by which laws can change and evolve in time. And so I've been searching to try to identify and make hypotheses about that process where the laws must have changed and evolved in time. Because the situation we're in is either we become kind of mystics, well, just those are the laws, full stop, um, or we have to explain the laws. And if we want to explain the laws, there needs to be some history, some process of evolution, some dynamics by which laws change. And this, again, this is, for some people, a very surprising idea. And it still is a surprising idea in spite of the fact that I've been thinking about it since the late 80s. But if you look back, I'm just trying to establish precedents. There are precedents. Dirac, you can find in his writings a place where Dirac says, the laws must have been different earlier in the universe than now. They must have changed. Even Feynman has, I found a video online where Feynman is a great way, and I wish I could do a Feynman Brooklyn accent sort of goes, but I'll try to fake it. Here are the laws, we say. Here are the laws. But how do they get to be that way in time? 
maybe physics really has a historical component because you see he's saying physics is different from the other subjects. There is no historical component to physics as there is to biology and geology and astrophysics and so forth. But Feynman ends up saying maybe there is a historical component. And then in the conversation, his interviewer says, but how do you do it? And Feynman goes, oh, no, 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 it's much too hard. I can't think about that. Um, so uh, having said that, um, it's very audacious to say I've been trying to think about that, but I have been trying to think about that since the late 80s. Um, it's worth mentioning what got me started thinking about evolving laws. And that was a comment that my friend Andy Strominger said about string theory. Andy is one of the important string theorists in the United States. And Andy had just written a paper, I think in about 88, in which he had uncovered evidence for the existence of a vast number of string theories. So originally there were five, and maybe that was not so bad they could be unified, and then there were hundreds of ways, and then there were hundreds of thousands of ways to curl up the extra dimensions. And then Andy identified another way to make a string theory that would make vast numbers. And he said to me, it's not even going to be worthwhile trying to connect this theory to experiment, because whatever comes out from experiment is going to be a version which would match that. And it took a lot of people a long time until the early 2000s to catch up to that. But I was really struck by that conversation and then went away and wondered about this. How could you have a theory that accounts for the selection of laws from a vast catalog of possible laws? And not only that, there are some mysteries about why the laws are what they are because they seem to be very special in certain ways. One way they're very special is that they seem to be chosen in such a way that leads to a universe with an enormous amount of structure, with structure on every scale from molecules and biological molecules to biological systems themselves to all the rich variety of structures on the Earth and the other planets to the rich structures of galaxies to clusters of galaxies on this vast array of scales. The universe is not boring on any scale you look at it. It's very structured. Why? And there turn out to be two connected reasons. One of them is that the laws are very special. One way they're very special is that they have parameters in them which we don't know the reasons for. These are things like the masses of the different elementary particles, the electron, the neutrinos, the quarks, the strengths of the fundamental forces. This is about 30 numbers that we just put into theory from experiment and then we have a model, the standard model, which works very well. But we have no reason, we don't understand why those numbers are what they are. So I started to imagine a scenario where the numbers could change in some violent events. Maybe the Big Bang was not the first moment of time. Maybe that was a violent event where our universe grew out of some previous universe. And maybe those numbers altered the way that when a new, a new individual is born, the genes are different than the parents. And I started to play with that idea and began to see how you could use the principles of natural selection to make predictions about our present universe, which in these predictions test the scenario that the laws evolved in a particular way. 
a thing that I understood from that, because there was already speculation about multi-universes and our universe being one of a vast number of other universes, and there was already the use of the anthropic principle to pick out our world, but I realized, and I've been making this argument forever, and it doesn't seem to have penetrated to some people, but you can't do science assuming that our universe is one of a vast array of other universes because you can't observe any properties of them. And science is not a fantasy story. It's not a Harry Potter story about magical things that might be true. Science is about what you can verify, hypotheses that you can test and verify. And if you're making hypotheses about many universes that exist simultaneous to us with no connection to our own, you can't verify those hypotheses. But if you're making a hypothesis about how our universe evolved from past universes, you're making hypotheses about things that happened in our past, and there can be consequences that you can verify. So through this, I came to the idea that laws must have evolved in time. And that was the idea of cosmological natural selection. Now, meanwhile, most of my work, most of my life, has been about quantum gravity, making the quantum theory of gravity. And in quantum gravity, we apply quantum mechanics to the equations of Einstein's theory of general relativity, and we come up with a theory that has no time, fundamentally. This is a point that Steve Hawking made, that Julian Barber has made many different ways. Um, the variable time, the dependence of processes on time just disappear from the fundamental equations of quantum cosmology, of quantum gravity applied to cosmology. Um, and time is said to emerge when the universe gets big in the same way the temperature emerges as an approximate description of the energy contained in a lot of molecules moving around randomly, or pressure emerges as a summation of all the forces coming from all the collisions of an atom on a wall. Um, but time is nowhere in the fundamental equations of quantum cosmology. Um, and I was working on the equations of quantum cosmology for many years. Um, with, first with Ted Jacobson and then with Carlo Rovelli, we solved a form of those equations. And that was the main root of my, my work. Um, so for many years, I had these two parallel things going on, one in which laws were evolving in time and the other in which time was emerging from laws, which therefore implied that the laws were timeless. Um, and because the first thing was a kind of side, you know, it was a kind of thing that I thought about from time to time on the side of my main work, it took me a long time to realize that there was a contradiction between those two stories. And um, that I'm a little bit ashamed of, but it's better to lay it on the table. <laughs> um, and several things happened which, which made that contradiction very evident and made me deal with it. One of them was in the quantum theory of gravity itself, um, there turned out to be technical issues realizing that picture of time emerging from a timeless quantum cosmology. And this isn't the place to talk about technical issues, but just to say something I'm convinced about is when a technical issue hangs around for many years and many people work on it and nobody solves it, it may 
be that you should re-examine the ideas behind it. Maybe it's not a technical issue. Maybe it's a fundamental conceptual or philosophical issue. And indeed, this is something that Feynman said to me when I was a graduate student. He said, there are things, again, I wish I could, I'm not sure why I'm invoking Feynman so much, but why not? There, he said, there are things that everybody believes that nobody can demonstrate. And you can make a useless career in science. He probably put it in an even more hard way. You can waste your time and waste your career by trying to work on things that everybody believes but nobody can show because you're probably not going to be able to show them either if a lot of smart people couldn't show them. Okay. Or you can investigate the alternative hypothesis, which is that everybody's wrong. And this always comes back to me, this with, with Feynman's voice. He, in particular, he, he at the time was thinking that confinement in QCD was wrong, and he was probably wrong about that. But Nonetheless, he, he made actually a brave effort to, to prove confinement. Um, so I began to wonder, maybe we're wrong about time emerging from law and quantum cosmology. Um, and that, I began to think maybe we should make quantum cosmology in some way in which time is fundamental and space may, may emerge from something more fundamental, but time is fundamental. So that's one thing that happened. Second thing that happened is that the picture of laws evolving, of a collection of universes evolving on a landscape of laws, um, went in about 2003 from being very much kind of a one-person little obsession that I engaged in on the side to a big deal when a, bunch of people in string theory came to the same conclusion. This was the result of work at Stanford. Um, and they found that the, the impetus for this was the positive dark energy or positive cosmological constant making string theory accommodate itself to that. And this collaboration of people at Stanford discovered that they could make string theories that had positive vacuum energy but only at the cost of there being vast numbers. So really they got back to where Andy Strominger was in 1988. And all of a sudden, and Lenny Susskind here played a big role, all of a sudden there was a lot of talk about the landscape of theories and the dynamics and change on the landscape of theories, which is the words that I had used. So I was sort of jolted into, my God, if everybody's taking this seriously, I should think carefully about this. The third thing that happened was I started interacting with a philosopher, Roberto Manguibera Unger, who had on his own been thinking about evolving laws for his own reasons. And he basically took me to task, this is about six, seven years ago, and said, look, you've been writing and thinking about laws evolving in time, but you haven't thought deeply about what that means for our understanding of time. If laws can evolve in time, then time must be fundamental. And I said, yes, but he said, you, you haven't thought deeply, you haven't thought seriously about that. So that, and we began talking and working together on, as a result of that conversation. Um, and so those three things together, um, about five or six years ago, made me go back and put together the idea that laws have to change in time if they're to be evolving with my thinking as a quantum gravity person about the nature of space and time quantum mechanically and playing with the idea that maybe time has to be really fundamental in that context.
So, um, so that thinking changed my work and much of my work for the last years has been devoted to um, thinking about various ways that, various hypotheses about how laws can change in time, thinking about the consequences for our understanding of the nature of time, and thinking about how to make theories and hypotheses that can be checked, because this stuff can get pretty speculative. I'm sure it does sound speculative. But for me, and this is something that Feynman also told me, Feynman said, whatever you do, you know, he said, you're going to have to do crazy things to think about quantum gravity, but whatever you do, think about nature. If you think about the properties of a mathematical equation, you're doing mathematics, and you're not going to get back to nature. Whatever you do, have a question that an experiment could resolve at the front of your thinking. So I always try to do that. And let me give, maybe give some more examples. Because um, cosmological natural selection was a long time ago. Um, it, let me just mention that it did make some predictions, and those predictions have so far stood up. Um, but let me talk about some newer ideas. Um, here's one which I call the principle of precedence. Um, and I, I think it's kind of cute. Um, and let me phrase in the language of quantum mechanics, which is where it, it comes from. It comes from actually thinking about the foundations of quantum mechanics, which is another thing that I try to think about from time to time. Um, we take a quantum system, we, and quantum systems are, are always thought about, from my point of view, as small bits of the universe that we manipulate and prepare in states and experiment with and measure. We're always doing something to a quantum system. I don't believe anymore there is anything that goes under the name of quantum cosmology. So let's say we have a quantum system. Let's say some, some ions in an ion trap, which we want to measure their quantum mechanical properties. So we prepare them in some initial state. We evolve them by transforming them, by interacting with them from the outside, for example, by applying magnetic fields or electric fields or probing them with various probes. Um, and then we apply a measurement. And because it's quantum mechanics, there's no prediction for the definite outcome of the experiment. There are probabilities for different possible outcomes. Okay. Now, let's consider a system that's been studied many times. We have measured before the statistical distribution of outcomes. There's some collection of past instances where we've measured the system before. And if we do it now and measure the system again, we're going to get one of those past outcomes that we saw before. If we do it many times now, we're going to get a statistical distribution, which is going to be the same distribution that we saw before. We're confident if we do it next year or in a million years or in a billion years, we're going to get the same distribution as we got before. Why are we confident of that? We're confident of that because we have a kind of metaphysical belief that there are laws of nature that are outside time, and those laws of nature are causing the outcome of the experiment to be what it is. And the laws of nature don't change in time. They're outside of time. They act on the system now. They acted on the system in the same way in the past, and they will act the same way in a year or a million or a billion years, and so they'll give the same outcome. So nature will repeat itself, and experiments will be repeatable because there are timeless laws of nature. 
But that's a really weird idea if you think about it because it involves the kind of mystical or metaphysical notion of something which is not physical, something which is not part of the state of the world, something which is not changeable, acting from outside the system to cause things to happen. And that, when I think about it, is a kind of remnant of religion. It's a remnant of the idea that God is outside the system acting on it. So let's try a different kind of hypothesis. What if, when you prepare the system, you transform and then you measure it, nature has a way of looking back and ask the question, have similar things been done in the past? And if they have, let's take one of those instances randomly and just repeat it. That is, nature forms habits. Nature looks to see, is there a similar thing that happened in the past? And if there was, or if there, it takes that. If there are many, it picks randomly among them and presents you with that outcome. Okay. Well, that will give the same statistical distribution as you saw in the past by definition, because you're sampling from the past. So there doesn't have to be a law outside of time. The only t law needs to be what I call the principle of precedence, that when you do an experiment, nature looks back and gives you what it did before again. Now you can say that involves some weird metaphysical idea. Nature is being able, has access to its past and is able to identify when is a similar thing being done, a similar thing, a similar measurement being made. And that's true, but it's a different metaphysical idea than the idea of the law acting from the outside. And it has different consequences. So let's play with this. So this reproduces the predictions of standard quantum mechanics. So it reproduces the success of standard quantum mechanics without having to believe in the timeless law. Can you test it? Because as I said, I'm only interested in ideas that can be tested. Yes, you can test it because people are working a lot with quantum technologies and they're making systems that have no precedence. They're making, they're making systems that, for example, in, in Waterloo, there's the Institute for Quantum Computing, and Ray Laflamme and his colleagues there are making systems that have never been made before. And so I talk to them and I say, maybe if you make a really novel system that will have no precedence, it won't behave as you expect it to, because it won't know what to do, so it'll just give you some totally random outcome. And they laugh, and I say, why is that funny? And they say, well, the first time we do an experiment, of course we get a totally random outcome, because there's experimental design issues and experimental error issues. We never get what we think we're going to get the first time we set up the experiment in the laboratory and we run it. So I say to them, great, that's fine, but eventually the thing settles down and starts giving repeatable results, and they say, sure. And I say, well, could you separate that process of settling down to definite results? Could you separate out the effect of having to make your experiment work from the, exper from the effect of um, my hypothesis that nature is developing habits as it goes along. And they say maybe. So we have a discussion going on about whether that could really be tested. Um, now, it's like any idea, it's probably wrong. But it's testable. And that, to me, proves it's science. Look, the, the, the current scene is very confusing. Um, very smart people 
have tried to advance theoretical physics in the last decades. Um, and we're in an embarrassing situation. The embarrassing situation is that theories which were already around in the middle 70s for particle physics and the early 80s for cosmology are being confirmed over and over again and to greater and greater precision by the current experiments. And this goes both for particle physics and cosmology. In particle physics, the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, identified a new particle, which is probably the Higgs. It looks like a standard model Higgs. And there's nothing else. There's no evidence for supersymmetry, for extra dimensions, for new generations of quarks, for substructure, for a whole variety of ideas, some of which have been very popular and some of which have not been very popular, but nonetheless have been on the table, none of these ideas which go beyond the standard model have been confirmed. In cosmology, the results of the Planck seem to be right in line with the simplest version of inflation. And this is a triumph for the standard model and a triumph for inflation. Now there are, Paul Steinhardt has a very interesting argument that maybe it really shouldn't be taken, the results of Planck really shouldn't be taken as confirming inflation. And I have enormous respect, I have deep respect for Paul. But um, the case is not closed, the case is not closed. And certainly at a naive level, it looks like a universe which is exactly the one that the inflationary theorists told us about. And they should be proud of that. Um, but it, this situation leaves a conundrum because we have nothing which confirms anything which goes beyond these, these models. And, and I should say there are also other. There's been, in my field of quantum gravity, there's been a lot of interest in the idea that certain astrophysical experiments would be able to see the breakdown of the structure of space and time that we have from general relativity and give us evidence of quantum space and time in the propagation of light coming from faraway gamma ray bursts, in the propagation of cosmic rays, we've been expecting for about a decade to see signals of quantum space-time. And these are not there either, so far. Um, so, so we're also very frustrated. Um, so my impression is that when, let me just come back to how I quoted Feynman, when very smart people have been working under certain assumptions for a long time, and this, these ideas have been around for a lot longer than Feynman was, the ideas that Feynman was concerned with, um, and we're not succeeding in uncovering new phenomenon and new explanations, new understanding for phenomenon, it's time to reassess the foundations of our thinking. Doesn't mean that everybody should do that, but some people should do that. And I find myself for, because of my own intellectual history, um, partly because of my work in quantum gravity, partly because of cosmological natural selection, partly because I have an inclination because part of my education was in philosophy rather, although my PhD is in physics, I, part of my undergraduate was in philosophy and I've always had an interest and I always had even more than that an appreciation, a deep appreciation for the history of thought about these fundamental questions. I find myself doing some of this reassessment. 
and um, we'll see we'll see where it goes. The conclusions that I come to, I, th- I think they're they're not subtle. They're they're easy to list. Are first that, and I was opening with him before the method of physics with fixed laws, which are given for all time, acting on fixed spaces of states, which are given for all time. Um, The picture of atoms with timeless properties moving around in a void according to timeless laws. This is self-limiting. It's the right thing to do when we're discussing small parts of the universe, but it breaks down when you apply it to the whole universe, or when when your chain of explanation gets too deep. Let me say another reason it breaks down. We can use the language of reductionism. It's very good advice. It has worked for hundreds of years that if we want to understand the properties of some composite system, some material, we explain in terms of the properties of its parts, of the things it's made from. That's good common sense. And a lot of the success of science is due to applying that good common sense advice. But what happens when you get to the things that you think of are really the elementary particles? They have properties too. They have masses and charges and various forces that they move about with. Um, But they have no parts, we believe. Or if they do have parts, you're just continuing to do this and then you should be looking for the breakdown into the parts, which is what experiment has not seen so far. So is there any other way to explain the properties of fundamental particles? Well, not by further reductionism. There has to be a new methodology. So that's the first conclusion, that the methodology that works for physics and has worked for hundreds of years, there's nothing wrong with it in the context in which it's been applied so successfully, but it breaks down when you push to the limits of explanation. Reductionism breaks down. And it breaks down when you push on the other end to larger and larger systems, to the universe as a whole, it breaks down. And I mentioned several reasons why it breaks down, but there are others. Let me just mention one. When we experiment with small parts of the universe, we do experiments over and over again. That's part of the scientific method. You have to reproduce the results of an experiment. So you have to do it over and over again. And by doing that, you separate the effect of general laws from the effect of changing the initial conditions on each experiment because you can start the experiment off different ways and if you see phenomena which are still general then they have to do with some general laws and so you can cleanly separate the role of the initial condition from the role of the general law. But When it comes to the universe as a whole we can't do that. There's one universe and it runs one time. We can't set it up. We didn't start it and indeed in working cosmology in inflationary theory, there's a big issue because you can't separately test hypotheses about the laws from hypotheses about the initial conditions because there was just one initial condition and we're living in its wake. This is another way in which this general method breaks down. So we need a new methodology. Um, The second idea, which I haven't mentioned yet, is that a good place to look for that methodology is in the relational tradition, the tradition of Leibniz and Mach and Einstein and Hermann Weyl, that space and time and properties of elementary particles are not intrinsic, they have to do with relationships that develop dynamically in time. The third conclusion is that time therefore must be fundamental. 
time must go all the way down. It must not be immersion, it must not be an approximate phenomenon, it must not be an illusion. And those are the conclusions that I come to and that my work these days is based on. So so how how do I situate myself? Um, First of all, let, let me... There, there are really two areas that my work impinges on most directly. One of them is quantum gravity, and the other is cosmology. So let me discuss each of those in turn. Um, in quantum gravity, there are several programs of research. Um, the one that I most have worked in and most identified with is loop quantum gravity. Um, loop quantum gravity is doing very well. Um, And let me take a a minute for that, because we haven't talked about that. Um, Loop quantum gravity is a very conservative research program. It comes from applying quantum mechanics directly to a form of general relativity with no additional hypotheses about extra dimensions or extra particles or extra degrees of freedom. In a particular form, we use those equations It's very close to gauge theory. It's very close to Yang-Mills theory. This was a form developed by Abhay Ashtakar and before him, although we didn't know about this, by Plabansky. Um, And this is now a big research program. We have every two years an international conference. Um, This year, I'm among the organizers. We're doing it at Perimeter. And we already have, it's very early, the conference is not till July, and we already have more than 200 people who are registered to come. Um, so this is not Carlo Rovelli and Abai Ashtakar and me sitting around in Verona writing in our notebooks the way it was in the late 80s, um, which was great. It's great to have a period. It's, it's great to be an inventor of something. It's great to have a period like that. Um, the, the key problem that loop quantum gravity has had to face is we have a microscopic picture of the structure of quantum geometry at the Planck scale, which is 20 orders of magnitude smaller than an atom. How does the space-time that we see around us emerge from that quantum picture? How, does, how do the equations of general relativity emerge to describe the dynamics of that space-time on a big macroscopic coarse-grained scale? And there's been a lot of progress to answering those questions in the last five, ten years. So it's, it's very healthy as a theoretical research program, although there are two fr- big frustrations with it that I have. One of them is that so far it still doesn't connect to experiment. That is, I was saying, I and others have been hoping that we would be able to make measurements that would detect the quantum structure of the geometry of space-time. And those experiments are not showing any sign of that quantum structure. Those are astrophysical experiments. Um, And the other thing is that, from my present point of view, loop quantum gravity is successful also when applied to small parts of the universe. But I no longer believe in taking the equations of quantum gravity and applying them to the universe as a whole. Because time disappears when you do that, and I think that time is fundamental. Um, but loop quantum gravity is healthy and is making um, the kind of incremental progress that healthy research programs make, which doesn't mean it's right, but it means that it's solving the questions that it has to solve to be real science. Um, 
And there are amazing young people working in the subject, people who are technically brilliant, who are able to do things that just amaze me. And that's a great pleasure. Um, I'm partly in and partly not in that research community because my interests in cosmology and my interest in the nature of time and other interests take me outside of it. But I still have many good friends there. I still go to the conferences. I still, some of what I do is in that context of loop quantum gravity. And I'm very happy to be a part of that community. But I'm not sitting at the center of it anymore, which is fine, because the people who are sitting at the center of it are better able to hold that position than I am. Um, string theory, um, which I've also worked on, um, ha is in part healthy as a research program and part um, stuck. It's, we no longer hear much from string theorists about what is the fundamental formulation of string theory or M theory as we used to call it, which is the part that I was most interested in and tried to work on. And we no longer hear although I think many people still believe them, we no longer hear aggressive claims of string theory being a theory of everything. There are two areas in which string theory is doing very well. One of them is mathematically. It's beautiful mathematics and mathematical physics. And it also provides applications through what's called the Maldacena conjecture or the ADS-CFT conjecture, to give the jargon, to ordinary systems, liquids, fluids, certain solid state systems, the same methods can be used to, in a new way, illuminate some phenomenon, some experimental phenomenon. And that has nothing to do with string theory as a unified theory, but is developing very, very nicely. Um, so then there are other programs. There's causal dynamical triangulations, quantum gravity, causal sets. These are things which are worked on by handfuls of people. And they are part of the landscape of ideas. Um, in cosmology, as I said, um, inflation and the standard model of cosmology is doing very well observationally. Um, but I think that Neil Turek and Paul Steinhardt have a very important point, which I agree with, which is that if you don't address the singularity, the, the part before inflation, if inflation is true, where the universe becomes infinitely dense at a finite time in the past and the general relativity stops working, you can't address really the question of initial conditions, what shows the initial conditions. And also, to me, what shows the laws. So it seems to me a necessary hypothesis that the Big Bang was not the first moment of time, but was an event, a transition, something like a phase transition, before which there was a universe which had possibly different properties and different laws. So the Big Bang becomes a, a phase transition, something like a black hole in that universe, that previous universe formed, there would have been a singularity to the future of that formation of that black hole. And instead, um, that singularity is wiped out by quantum effects and we, as we say, bounces. And whereas the star was collapsing and was going to just collapse to infinite density, quantum effects make it bounce back and start to be expanding again. 
and that makes a new region of space and time which can be a new universe. That's one hypothesis about what the Big Bang was as a transition. Paul and Neil have a different hypothesis which has to do with the whole universe as a whole going through a phase transition. Um, the quantum gravity people have a different hypothesis. But these are, I mean, it's as if the properties of space as we know it in all these cases are like a frozen piece of ice. And when the universe goes through a big bang, it's like space melts and becomes liquid and rearranges its properties and then freezes again. So the big bang was something really like a big freeze in a temporary, following a temporary melting. Um, it seems to me that this is a necessary hypothesis to explain the initial conditions because the one thing that inflation doesn't do, which it claimed to do, was, was make the initial conditions of the universe probable or explain why the universe is so unusual in its early stages. Um, and I think that Paul, whatever the fate of Paul and Neil's cyclic cosmology, their particular hypotheses, I think they're right. Whether inflation is right or not, I think they're right that there had to have been a phase transition replacing the Big Bang and therefore the explanations for things in the early universe will be pushed back to before the Big Bang. Um, and that of course intersects with my interest in quantum gravity because quantum mechanics has to become important at those scales where the phase transition happened. And indeed over in the quantum gravity world we have models of quantum cosmology, so-called loop quantum cosmology models, developed by Martin Bojewald, Abhay Ashtakar, and many other people by now, which show this balance happening, show that the singularities are always removed and replaced by bounces. Um, so I think that um, Cosmology, my, my view is that cosmology to stay healthy, cosmology has been very healthy because of the success of the standard model of cosmology. But we're left with a very similar question to the question the particle physicists are left with. We're left with the question of why this peculiar universe? We've measured the properties of the universe very well. Whether inflation is true or not, it's a very improbable universe. Why this universe? Why not other universes which would be more typical given what we understand about the laws? So this is the initial conditions problem again. And where my recent thinking comes in and is relevant is the collection of arguments that I have that we can't address those kind of questions on the basis of the same kind of methodology that worked so far. So I come back to, to my conclusions. Um, is there a community of people thinking the same way? Um, yes and no. Um, not very many within either the cosmology community or the quantum gravity community. So for example, I mean, Carlo Rovelli is my dear friend. And in the loop quantum gravity world, we and, and others um, are very much in sync. But Carlo is still a believer in the fundamental timelessness of quantum gravity and quantum cosmology, although we, we talk about it. Um, in the world of philosophy, 
Um, what I'm doing is not new and not a surprise. I mentioned Roberto Unger, who's been, it's been um, kind of like um, what Picasso once said about his collaboration with, um, oh my God, I'm losing the name, Brack. It's what Picasso said about his collaboration with Brack. It's like being at times roped together on a mountain. And um, with Roberto, it's, it's been a wonderful adventure to develop these ideas and to provoke each other. Um, but other, there is a philosophical context. Again, in the American pragmatist tradition, going back to Charles Sanders Peirce, none of the ideas I'm talking about are new or particularly surprising. Um, so how philosophers will react is unclear, but I, I'm in a context, I'm, the context of ideas I'm talking about in which time is real and laws can change are issues that they've been talking about and discussing and debating and have positions about um, already for a century. Um, I hope to convince people because um, the chain of thought that I've been through is not serendipity, it's not where I plan to end up, it's not where I hope to end up. I don't actually like being out on my own. I don't actually enjoy controversy and conflict, unlike some other people we can mention. Um, I, I feel like my job is to develop these ideas, to put them out there, um, and especially to develop them in a form in which they're science and not philosophy. The philosophers can develop the philosophy. Um, and let me, let me mention another, if I may, another ramification of these. Um, let me mention another ramification of thinking about time being real as opposed to emergent or an illusion. Um, the second law of thermodynamics is very well established and is on macroscopic scales clearly true. Disorder increases, entropy increases. Most things that we deal with in our everyday lives are irreversible. There are strong arrows of time. There's a directionality of time. We can't go backwards. We are born, we grow up, we get older, we die. We, um, if I spill this Coke on the carpet, it's not gonna go, nothing we could do could make it go back into the cup. Um, the birth of a child is irreversible. Um, an unkind word said accidentally to a friend is irreversible. Many things, most things in life are irreversible. Um, and this is mostly codified by the second law of thermodynamics. Now, in the late 19th century, Boltzmann proposed successfully that thermodynamics was not fundamental because matter was made of atoms and that the laws of thermodynamics he proposed could be explained as being emergent from the behavior of atoms where the atoms follow fundamental laws of motion. So temperature is not a fundamental quantity. It's the average energy caught up in the random motion of atoms and so forth. And entropy is not a fundamental quantity. It's a measure of the disorder or the improbability of, or probability of a configuration of atoms. Um, and Boltzmann was right, but there was a paradox inherent in his reasoning which people at the time 
identify. And at the time, it's shocking to think that, but at the time of the late 19th century, the atomic hypothesis was not wildly popular and was not consensus among physicists. So we had intellectual opponents. And they said to him, you claim to have derived as emergent a theory which has a strong directionality of time from the fundamental laws of motion of Newton. But the fundamental laws of motion of Newton are reversible in time. If you take a picture, take a film of atoms moving about in the void, interacting according to Newton's laws, and you run that film backwards, that's something which also can happen according to the laws. So there's a kind of paradox because Boltzmann could just as easily have used Newton's laws to prove the anti-second law, to prove that entropy is always higher in the past and lower in the future. And indeed, um, they were right. And this was worked out by the Ehrenfest, Paul and Titania Ehrenfest, um, who were dear friends of Einstein in around 1905, 1908, I think, or somewhere around then. Um, and they understood that actually what Boltzmann proved was symmetric in time. What he proved is that if you find a system with the entropy low at one time, it's most likely to increase in the future because disorder most likely increases when things move about randomly. But it's also most likely that the entropy was higher in the past and that what you're seeing is an accident, is what he called the fluctuation. And so the question is not what explains the second law, but what explains the conditions, the initial conditions. To explain the second law, you have to assume that the initial conditions are very improbable, so that the system is more ordered than it might be. And um, this was a great mystery to Boltzmann. He didn't have the benefit of living in the 20th century, or long into the 20th century, so he imagined that the universe was governed by Newton's law and was eternal. And he could only assume that we lived in the wake of a huge fluctuation where the universe was mostly in equilibrium, which is the state when entropy is maximal, and spent most of his time in equilibrium and just occasionally due to a random fluctuation got way out of equilibrium. And that formed the sun and that was the cause of the world we were living in now. Um, now that's wrong, there's no evidence for that. So why is there such a strong arrow of time if the laws of physics are fundamentally reversible in time? Well, here I, Roger Penrose had an idea which I think is very worth investigating, which is in two parts. One of them is he, and this was in an essay in 1979, he argued, and I think correctly, that the only way to explain the arrow of time as we observe it in the universe is if the initial conditions of the Big Bang were very, very special and being very, very improbable. And that's a theme of my discussion, and that reoccurs here. So yet another sense in which to explain, within the present paradigm of reversible laws, the tremendous irreversibility of phenomena that we observe, you have to put all the weight on the cosmologists on explaining why the initial conditions were so improbable. And as a cosmologist I know remarked, that's not a job the cosmologists signed up for. They have enough to do. They have enough problems of their own, let alone having to explain the whole irreversibility of nature in the second law. Um, but that's where the burden of proof is. Now, Roger Penrose's proposal was that maybe 
the fundamental laws are actually time asymmetric. And the time symmetric laws are emergent and approximate. And so maybe all those histories where we take a movie of a part of the universe and we run it backwards couldn't really be part of the history of the real universe going all the way back to the Big Bang. Let me give an example of that. Um, when we look around, we see light coming from the past. I mean, this is more evident when we look out in telescopes. We see stars as they were in the past. We never see light coming to us from the future. We never see starlight coming to us from stars in the future. We never see supernova explosions in the future sending radiation back in time to us. But the laws that govern the propagation of light, Maxwell's equations, are reversible in time. So it has solutions which involve light propagating from events in the future and propagating information and energy into the past for us to observe it from the past. It has just as many solutions like that as it has solutions of the kind we use. So the law is symmetric in time, but to apply it to nature, we throw away most of it because we throw away any solution where there's any hint of anything propagating from the future to the past. Roger would say maybe the real theory that underlies Maxwell's equations, which for him and I agree would be the real quantum theory of gravity, just propagates energy and information from the past into the future and doesn't have this problem in this paradox. So this then becomes a challenge. Can we make hypotheses about how the fundamental laws could really be asymmetric in time and irreversible in time and understand how the present laws become reversible? And, and with a colleague, I've been working on that. So that's another way in which these philosophical critiques that I think are necessary to understand why we're stuck in fundamental physics and cosmology then motivate work as a scientist, which is to be appreciated or not and evaluated on the basis of the usual criteria of science, that is, does it lead to new hypotheses which lead to new experiments which check them, which are confirmed by those experiments.